McKay Rippy and with me is Aurora. Hi. And this is a special episode of Lime Ninja Radio. It is the best of Lime Ninja Radio. We're going to celebrate the beginning of tick season <laughs> with a series of our most popular episodes. We want you to be informed and ready for the beginning of Lime season. So, Aurora, what happens in the spring? Well, in the spring, that's when the nymph larvae start coming out. Now, this is from the New York State uh, Health website, which says during the spring and early summer, the nymphs end their dormancy and begin to seek a host. That means you. (laughs) Nymphs are commonly found on the forest floor in the leaf litter on low-lying vegetation. Their Their hosts primarily consist of mice and other rodents, deer, birds, and unfortunately, humans. Most cases of Lyme disease are reported from May through August, which corresponds to the peak activity period for nymphs. So what that means is most people are getting bit in the, sometime in April. The weather warms up. There's the snow melt up here in the north. The There's leaves still left over from the fall around, so it's damp, it's moist, it's perfect tick weather. The deer are on the move. They're all over the place up here. Mm-hmm. And we see just herds of 30 and 40 deer just traveling all over the place. And deer have lost their fear of humans, so they're coming into your yard, your backyard. They just don't care anymore. In fact, the picture that we put up uh, for this episode is of a baby fawn being licked by a dog. <laughs> and while that's very cute, it makes everybody say, aw, it also means that they can be passing ticks back and forth to each other. Gross. Yes, indeed. All right. So this episode's uh, with Peter Aquilinas. He's an expert on keeping deer and ticks out of your yard. It's a great listen. Uh, on the show notes, there's also uh, some information. There's his website address there with his logo. There's also a really informative brochure from the Connecticut uh, State Department of Natural Resources, and it's a tick management handbook. It has everything you need to know about ticks and how to keep them out of your yard. And lastly, on the show notes, there's a video about cedar oil, and cedar oil can repel ticks to some degree. They really don't like it, and if you use it in your yard, you can keep the ticks around the edges and away from you and your children. All right, here's our interview. So I have with me Peter Aquilina. He is the founder and owner of Deer Defense. And Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, McCabe. Happy to be here. Yeah, I love the name of the your business. <laughs> Thank I, you. I have a soft spot for puns. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone wants to search, it's DeerDefense.com, but defense is spelled with a C, D-E-F-E-N-C-E. Yeah, it's brilliant. So I, as, so I'm an acupuncturist and being in business for myself, I have to know, I ask people all the time, is, does your family have a history of being entrepreneurs or did you strike out on your own? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I struck out on my own, but my father, who was actually a vascular surgeon, was, was a pioneer in his field. So it's not that he was an entrepreneur in a business sense, but he was a, uh, he was progressive in his techniques, uh, and actually saved, saved the guy's leg from the Korean war, um, who had a mangled, mangled leg apparently because of a, a landmine. And they flew him back to the States and, uh, the commanding officer of the it was a mass unit, but it was, you know, it was a, it was one on, on the state side and he came, came around. And of course my, you know, my, my dad wasn't, he was uh, a captain at the time. And I think it was a colonel was above him came around and said, you know, you got to take this guy's leg off. And he would just do the rounds and go and tell the doctors what basically what they had to do and what would be amputated and what wouldn't be amputated. Well, he, he disobeyed a direct order <laughs> because he wanted to, try this new technique that, that he had learned. And the colonel said no, and he, and he didn't listen to him. And he, he almost got in trouble for it, but 
it, apparently the 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 company commander said uh, that he he was okay because he saved the guy's leg. Interestingly enough, they stayed friends for 60, 70 years after that. The guy that he saved his leg. Yeah, that's an incredible he was always, story. He was always in contact with my father, so they stayed friends for for decades after that. How about that? The old uh, ask for forgiveness rather than permission, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it all it came to me when when I saw how little was understood, not only about Lyme and how it was transmitted, but also about the biggest risk as a carrier, meaning as a host uh, of the ticks themselves, which are the deer, uh, how little was understood about keeping them away from your property a certain distance from, from, your, from your, where you dwell and, and play. So very little was understood about that. And in fact, I walked away from, from literally a million-dollar partnership outside of Philadelphia, a deer fence company outside of Philly, because they were only willing to work with the plastic and sell the plastic deer fence, which is, oh. was made in Italy, actually, and is still made in Italy. Um, so it's, just, it's simply not a product that people can put a large perimeter, exclusion perimeter up, and expect it to work for very long because it's just not strong enough in the end, period. Okay. So I, I walked and I developed a steel-based deer fence that at this point far surpasses the sales of the polypropylene plastic deer mesh. Um, and that was, you know, I certainly wouldn't walk from the million dollar partnership again because I had two small kids. Um, but at the time I was full of piss and vinegar and thought that I could, you know, conquer the world and, and really make, make a, a run of this and did quite well. Actually, it took some, took some time with, with little to no capital, but, um, the, the, the cream seems to, to rise to the top. One guy told me so, um, it, it's just, it's little understood and very oversold, this industry. So why, so, uh, so why, go ahead. why fencing? I mean, what, 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 no, 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 that's not the question I want to ask. The question I want to ask is, how, how come Lyme fencing? I mean, how'd you, how'd you get from being in a household with a vascular surgeon uh, I'm sure he pushed your dad pushed you to go to college. I don't know if you went to college, and then you end up in Philadelphia <clears throat> in a business selling fencing to prevent deer and Lyme disease. A very good question. I was living in Buffalo, and I graduated uh, with a bachelor's degree in international business. Uh, that was '91 when I graduated, and did not want to continue school. I wanted to get out in the marketplace, and you know. Not only is Buffalo's economy terrible, still is, but it was also a recession at that time. So uh, I, you know, I toughed it out for a few years and didn't, I was, by the time I moved, which was in 98, I moved to Connecticut, I had been selling insurance, life insurance and mutual funds and other things, disability, uh, for about six years and I absolutely despised it. And one reason I despised it was the biggest reason I would say is because, you know, anybody who sells you life insurance or anything like that, securities or anything, they can't tell you the whole truth or they're not going to make the money. Period. So the next time you go to your insurance agent, <laughs> say, are you sure that this is the best policy for me? I mean, they were, they were selling, you know, they were selling it at, this was a time when they were selling life insurance policies as investments. Right. I remember um, that. They came up with other things other than whole life or term life, like universal life, uh, variable life. And that's all kind of been squelched and controlled by the insurance industry now because it was being, it was being fraudulently sold and oversold. So, um, but I hated it. So I moved to Connecticut. Uh, my sister lived in North Stanford with her husband, who was a corporate lawyer in, in New York. And it just so happened that the, one of the first advertisements I looked for employment in the paper was with a company called Beer Off, which now and since then, then has been sold to Habitat Industries. 
which makes the, the have a heart traps. Um, well, actually, uh, the mother company is Woodstream Industries. Um, started with them, was the sales manager for them, and got a very quick education that this is this is a market that is really tapped uh, by retailers and manufacturers and simply because there's there's a niche to be filled but that doesn't mean that that whatever they're offering is effective very little is understood as far as the the business aspect of it about the animal itself so okay. the, the fault the opponent that we are taking on there's there's absolutely no film watched no research done you know, learning your opponent when you get into the ring or out there on someone's property where it counts. Sure, it's not your property, it's their property. So who gives a shit if it works, right? As long as they buy it. Ridiculous. So um, so what so what then did you learn that these other so I mean it's a situation almost like the insurance deal, right? It's like you like you feel people are being taken advantage of and you want to do something about it. Absolutely true. So I'll tell you, I'll try to make it fast. Like I said, don't get me started. I go for hours on this stuff. I called in, in my series of calls every day. I called this lady landscaper. I owned a pretty large landscaping company, I guess, outside of Pittsburgh. And she had bought two 55-gallon drums of this stuff. Cost her almost 10 grand, as I remember. And this was in 99. Um and it's, of course, it's all natural, you know, it's, there's no toxins in it or anything. It's uh, egg yolks and some uh, hot pepper and a few other things. And she said, you know, the first year worked great, perfect. Last year didn't work at all. So I said to myself, you know, this is a good thing we're going to do. I heard guaranteed so many times when I first walked in there for my, on my first day, that if I had a dollar for every time, I would have I would have invested in Disney and been in the Caribbean by now. <laughs> they were selling me, and now you know. In retrospect, you kind of understand how the whole thing works, right? So they're going to make sure when you walk in to work for them, to speak for them, and sell their product, that you understand that this thing is guaranteed to the hilt. So. I talked to this lady and I got her answer and I went in and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're going to do something really good here. So I go in and I talk to the boss, Tom, and I say, Tom, all right, this is why I'm thinking to myself, this is why I moved out of that hell hole, Buffalo. We're going to do something good here and we're, gonna, we're, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna end up paying for it. We're actually gonna end up benefiting in the end is my thinking, right? So I said, Tom, she said it didn't work at all last year. He told me, call her back, tell her she didn't mix it right. <laughs> User error, said, huh? Yeah. I said, Tom, you call her back and tell her she didn't mix it right. right. In two weeks, I was with that deer, plastic deer fence company outside of Philadelphia. So then what, how come the deer didn't, pay attention to the egg yolk, all natural cayenne pepper, whatever it was, mixture the second year. What happens? Great question. Deer are the most adaptive mammals in North America. Biologists say it. Uh, a lot of hunters will say it. Farmers will say it. Uh, and I'll say it, that this, this animal, biologists that that know this animal in America say that the white-tailed deer should be our national symbol, should not be the bald eagle, because this animal can adapt to any and every environment that we have in in the lower 48. Uh, even more than you and me, more than humans. They're faster at adapting. They can take something that's poisonous literally in a few years. Not this generation, but maybe the next or the one after, can now digest this and now make it instead of a poison to their system, a nutrient to their system. They're absolutely amazing. 
Um, I, I envy them and kind of worship the hooves that they walk on every day. They're just a fascinating animal. Um, we almost wiped them out in 1900. There were only about half a million left in the whole country. And they have come back in leaps and bounds. So the problem is, is that they don't see, they all think like you and I, and this is, this is something because of Disney and, you know, um, other Disney movies and the yearling, one of my favorite films with Gregory Peck, we put human, uh, in, uh, human traits to the animal. We try and humanize them and that's not how they work. It's not, does something taste good? It's way more to do with what did mom teach me to eat when and where? That's why they'll devastate this hosta and that plant and this hosta over here. And there's a row of hostas, okay? 20 on, on, on the driveway. And the homeowner asks me, why the hell do they keep eating that one and that one and that one? And they don't touch the other ones. And I spray the hell out of those ones that they keep eating and they keep coming back. Why is that? I say because it has little to nothing to do with taste. Is that yummy? It all has to do with what did mom, who knew everything, mom taught me everything. She was my, she was my master, my teacher in life. I was with her for about a year and a half, and she taught me every single thing, where I'm supposed to be and when and what to eat and when and where. So that's incredible because we have a few cows on our property, and they definitely go by taste. And the taste may be driven by their nutritional needs at the time, but they'll walk a pasture and take a little nibble here, a little, little nibble there. But it's nothing like this habitual behavior you're talking about. Right. And, and deer are only, and, and, and that's how they survive. Um, they're only driven by habitual instinct and teachings of their mother when they're young. Can they radio adapt? Yes. And a great example of that, in fact, they're excellent at it. One example of that uh, is, I think it was 88, when we had the Northeast had a terrible winter, um, two or three really bad storms, a lot of snow and, and very cold. And hollies were on the deer-resistant plant list. They, after 89 and 90, they were no longer on the deer-resistant plant list or they were coming off quickly because the deer were continuing to eat the holly bush, which has, you know, a little pricker on the end. They're right. sharp. Right. And, you know, you would think what kind of stupid animal would go around eating a holly bush. White tail deer. Yeah. Right. So, so is this the reason why deer are no longer afraid of humans? Uh, that's one reason they're no longer afraid of humans. The, it, it, it's pretty amazing that we're, we're, let, we're actually living in a very special time where wildlife, and there's a few reasons for this, but deer, let's talk about deer for a second. Deer have, and other wildlife, have become over years more accustomed and unafraid of us, especially in areas where we don't discharge firearms anymore. One of those is Connecticut. Um, there's little to no hunting going on in the state of Connecticut anymore. Uh, unless it's a private, you know, unless it's a private land and you have special permission to do so. Uh, the deer have moved into our, to our suburban areas and thrived. I hear all the time, especially from, from the wife, if I go in and look at a property for, for deer fence, Oh, you know, the poor deer were encroaching on their territories and were building in their land. And yes, but they like that. So it's true that we are taking that acre of woods or two acres of woods, which only yielded so much food before, right? And now we're clearing it out. We're planting all these expensive, nutritious, uh, loaded with nutrients for the deer, by the way, flowers and hostas and other things that are ornamental plants. And right on the edge of where a whitetail thrives, they are the border creatures. 
So where whitetail thrives is right on the edge of the woods and in, in, the, in the beginning of the clearing of the field. So that is, that is a, a deer's prime territory, is right on the fringe of the woods and that open field. So that scenario is created every day when, when a developer goes in and, and clears, you know, whatever, whatever footage or acreage uh, of the development that he's going to use. And now that same piece of property will, will yield much more food for them because, simply because we're planting it for them. Now, there's another reason. There's many eastern coyotes around now, and, and other predators too, but the big one in big numbers. We don't see them very often. They are becoming less afraid, so we are seeing them more. But as much as we see them, really does not come close to the numbers that exist. There's many. Um, and they're big. They're half-wolves, in fact. They're genetically, they've, they've been genomed. Uh, we used to call them coy dogs, right? Meaning that they were half, you know, mid prairie, what I call John Wayne coyote, and half canine. That's absolutely untrue. Uh, it's been proven. What they are is specifically half coyote, mid prairie coyote, which is not much bigger than a fox, and half Canadian timber wolf. And they think scientists think that happened maybe three, four hundred years ago up around Minnesota, somewhere in that area. And they've been migrating east, and now it's considered a separate subspecies. And this thing is big. It's like a big, it's like a German Shepherd, like a full-grown German Shepherd. So the deer have realized, and this is, I'm going to say, within the past 20 years, um, as the eastern coyote numbers have gone up and the deer population has gone up, the deer feel safer around the house because they know that we will not hurt them we can't, and that the predators that are out there in the woods at night, typically, are afraid to be seen around people's houses. Now, that may change, and I think it is changing a little bit, but that is one reason that we see this congregation of the white-tailed deer around people's houses. It's not necessarily that there's good things there to eat. It's that it's kind of a safe haven where the animal knows, it kind of feels friends with us. It feels a kinship or a, a, a big brother protection, if you want to put it that way. They can stay on the property and, you know, some people are, they're silly. They even, they even give them salt licks and feed, which is illegal in Connecticut, but it still happens. Right. So essentially by having a home anywhere near the woods, and well, even in suburban settings, we've created deer magnets. That is a deer magnet is, is well put. That's well phrased. Yeah. So, so, so now let's get into, so you've got these, so now you've got your beautiful or, ornamentals. Mama deer has taught Bambi how to eat all your beautiful stuff. It's safe from the coyotes, the koi dogs. And how does that bring the, the tick, the black lady, black legged tick into the picture? The, White-tailed deer and, and other species in other areas, but here there's only, uh, in the Northeast, there's, there's only one, and that's the white-tail, is the main carrier. There's many, you know, there, there's a lot of misinformation now, um, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second, but there's a lot of misinformation about that the deer are perhaps not the weight on the balance of the lime risk balance beam uh, that we once thought they were. And this is absolute preposterous, ridiculous. 90% of adult female deer ticks at the end of their two-year life cycle will find a deer as their last host. Sorry about that. And this, this is the animal that is bringing that adult female deer tick onto your property or adjacent to your property. And then that adult female deer tick drops off, typically in a shaded area, a shaded moist area in the cool leaf litter and over, uh, undergrowth. And she lays her eggs in about a baseball to a softball size area. 
She then puts a pink poison on them, and not even ants will predate deer tick eggs in the end. So they will hatch. The, the, the likelihood of them hatching is very high. If it's an extremely dry year or drought year, maybe not. This year has been, unfortunately, not like that. So it's been a very bad year for bugs. And I would imagine that in fall we're going to see tick populations on the rise because it's been a very wet, perfect year for them. So, uh, so, so watering, watering your yard is going to help the ticks grow? You know, it can, but typically they're not going to be in the low-cut, heavy sun, grassy areas. Especially deer ticks are very sensitive to heat. Dog ticks or wood ticks, same thing. Not so much so. But deer ticks, the most dangerous one right now, and in fact a lone star tick is, is on its way. It's here now. It's not prevalent yet, but it will be soon. It is the most dangerous, but it's not, not the most dangerous yet because the numbers aren't there. The populations aren't there yet. So right now it's the deer tick. It can keep the most microbial forms alive in its gut more than a dog tick. A dog tick can still give you Lyme disease, but a deer tick is much more likely to transmit it. Um, so they, they cannot typically survive in areas where the grass is kept short, and that area gets five to six hours of direct sunlight a day, and it's hot. Now, in the spring, when it's not hot, can you get a tick on your lawn? Yes, you can but during, during the warm winter, uh, summer months, like right now, this is the time when if you have a large lawn that gets more than five or six hours of direct sunlight a day, on that hot sunny day, can, your kids, can you feel that your kids are safe playing outside in the grass? The answer to that is yes, you can. Well, that's good. When news. they get close to the, to the woods, if you, if you live, you know, on the woods, on the edge of the woods, and the ball goes in the woods, and the kids just go after the ball. Should you then do a tick check when they come out of the woods or at the end of the day before you put them in the bath? Absolutely. In fact, I wouldn't wait until the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's it's, it's those very short bursts of I don't, I'm just going in there for a minute. I don't have to worry about it. Most people don't even think that thought. Like, the, the, the due diligence and the vigilance is, is not to that heightened level yet where it should be. And everybody in the Northeast should be there. So the you don't problem have... is, I'm sorry, unfortunately, until you get Lyme or you know someone who gets terribly afflicted with Lyme disease, you probably won't raise your level of awareness that high. Now, do you have Lyme disease or did you get it? Yes. When did you get it, and where? Uh, well, I, I had a number of bites. You know, you, you, you couldn't find heavily, more heavily infested tick areas than I go into. That's, that's why people call me, because they want me to put the deer fence around their property, and typically they live on the wetlands or in very heavily wooded, at least on the edge of the property where the fence is going to go, in heavily wooded areas. So how do you it's protect yourself? Well, I wasn't so good on it back then. wasn't so good about it. Uh, now I use uh, cedar oil from a company called Cedarside. The, the cedar oil originally developed for pets. I douse myself, my kids, my wife. We, we don't go outside without it. Uh, it's a wonderful product. It's food grade, smells wonderful, and it kills the tick on contact. Uh, you have to reapply it every so every few hours to keep it kind of wet. You can't let it dry out. You can't let it sweat off your skin too much, and or you have to reapply it. But it's phenomenal stuff. And so, is this in a spray or is this like a lotion? Yes, it's a spray. Okay, cool. Something that I will be soon uh, offering in my own private label on my website, uh, and also something that people can spray on their properties. Uh, completely organic, very heavy on the cedar oil formulation, but uh, containing some other things like citronella, thyme, maybe a little garlic oil for mosquitoes, 
Um, so this is something that I'm working on currently. And that'll be something that they can put in their sprayer and just kind of hit the edges of their property and help keep the yes. population down? Yes, and their sprinkler system as well. I'm, I'm a, a, a distributor as of recently for a um, something called a sprinkler magician out of Florida, which ties into the irrigation system and cycles uh, autonomously. It does not need the irrigation clock to trigger to, to come to the, the time of um, to water. It actually works the whole unit itself and cycles the whole system itself and injects concentrate into this into the nozzles into the sprinklers and it distributes it that way. Um, one thing that does not exist which I'm developing is kind of an add-on system which gets into the leaf litter and the heavy undergrowth which is adjacent to the property or next to the grass um, that is not targeted by this specific area because, you know, typically people don't water those areas. They just water the lawn. Right. So, um, but it's, you know, the, the only other option, you know, people, when I go over to somebody's house, and typically that's why they call me, it's, when I first started in 2000, it was about half and half. About half people wanted protection for their expensive ornamental plants and about half the people were deathly afraid of ticks and Lyme disease. Now it's about 98% Lyme. And I go over to someone's house and they ask me, what do I do? Obviously you're here because you're, you're an expert in the deer abatement and deer behavior and you've developed the fence. So what else do I, what else can I do? You know, up until now I've, the best answer that I had for them was, you can call your local tick spray company. I have a few people that I recommend. The problem is, is it's a commercialized business. They are heavily dependent, uh, even slaves, to the weather. So that tick spray company that has a big truck and a big high-pressure nozzle and, you know, all that hose and they get it way out to the back of your property, if it's been raining for three days and you're on the schedule or you were on the schedule yesterday, but it was raining, you know, your property may not even be completely dry yet. And they're going to come out this morning because they have to. That's just, that's, that's the only window they have. It's supposed to rain in two days. Okay. So as soon as you commercialize this stuff is when the efficacy begins to suffer because it's not being done in pristine or prime conditions for the formula and the, and the treatment itself to be effective. You're not supposed to apply it when it's wet. You're not supposed to apply it if it's going to rain in a few hours. And that happens all the time, simply because it's been made into a business. So that's one of the things I like about this system. It gives complete control to the homeowner so they can either operate it, program it themselves, or they can have their you know, if they have a, lands, uh, a groundskeeper or a landscaper that does work for them on the property, they can take the responsibility and do it. It's very easy to use. And in, in, in my mind, it's kind of a no-brainer. It, it takes something that's already there, that's already dispersing water uh, to, at a great distance, in fact. So you're utilizing the equipment that, that the homeowner has already paid for. And in the end, it should save them money and give them better efficacy and more control over their over how their property is treated for ticks and mosquitoes. I, I just think it's going to be a, a, a wonderful add-on for my business. So does that type of system replace a fence, or do you need both? No, no, you absolutely need both. <laughs> no, the, the problem is, is that you can, you can have someone come and spray, or you spray yourself, whatever manner that is, and a few days later, you have a, a deer come and they have, you know, now they have anywhere from 1,000 to 1,200 ticks on them <laughs> during the warm months. That's, that's true. Uh, they're, I mean, they're a little, a little cruise ship. And the problem is most of the passengers are pregnant females ready to give birth to about 3,000 larvae. That's the problem. Um, so no, the, the deer fence is keeping, keeping that animal, that big animal, the main carriers of the adult female deer tick, keeping that a certain distance 
away from your property is absolutely the single most effective measure someone can take to and reduce how, tick counts on their property. How far away do you think they have to be kept? I mean, obviously, there's variables based on the vegetation and all, but is it a quarter? That's correct. And is there's it, also variables how many squirrels, how many, how many dual uh, zone animals now are left. So the deer on the outside, and they're depositing the ticks, however many or however few there are, but there are some that are being deposited, and then those adult females are laying eggs, which are then hatching. So now it depends on those larvae, those deer tick larvae, or tick larvae in general, need, they cannot, they cannot climb. So they need that belly-to-ground animal, typically a, a rodent, to pass over them within two weeks. If they don't do it within, if they don't find their first post within two weeks, they're dead. So keeping the deer a certain distance away, I'm going to say, you know, a thousand foot perimeter, which is a little over an acre, is is good. Anything less than that, you know, you kind of begin to to get in closer to the house, which means probably your numbers on your tick reductions are not going to be so good. But when you're an acre or bigger, now what you've done is you've you've pushed that animal so far out that you're not going to have many dual uh uh, territory animals like a squirrel or a chipmunk. You know, some of their territory is on the outside of the fence, some of it's on the inside of the fence. And they're not going to be picking up those larvae and nymph ticks, what the larvae mold into, then become a nymph, um, and bringing them in. So the bigger the deer fence, the higher reduction and the less introduction from the smaller animals you have of them now bringing ticks in to your property. And nymph ticks are some of the most dangerous because you, you, you won't feel a nymph. Right, they're so typically. small. Yeah, They're so small. And they can bite you, you know, get into the blood just as easily as an adult. And can the nymph, um, can the nymph jump? No. Okay. That's, I'm glad you're asking these. These are very good questions. There is... This is an old rumor, um, probably that came from Europe, probably from the forestry industry, because they ticks can drop from trees. However, there is no evidence, and in fact, their anatomy is not such that they are built to jump. Okay, so they're they not are like a flea. Not built. They're not like a flea. Not like a flea is correct. Okay. That's great. No, they, they crawl, and th this is a good kind of segue into the lone star tick. The dog tick and deer tick are blind. They do detect CO2, which is one reason we think that perhaps they can drop from up above on, on someone because they may detect your, your heat signature or your CO2. Uh, but the Lone Star Tick is very fast. And it has been known to, and it has eyes, it has been known to follow carbon dioxide trails for a mile or more. So these things will march, and they're very bad in Maryland right now. So there's a lot of buzz uh, in, in the mid-Atlantic states right now about the Lone Star Tick. And are they migrating north? Well, it's, it's not that they're migrating. It's that they're here, but they're simply that they haven't had long enough to, to, to have a population explosion like uh -huh. the other two have. So they're already, um, they're already here. It's just a matter until they figure out how to really reproduce and That's correct. Going. They are being reported sporadically, but they are being reported in New England, yes. Great. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so they are very fast, like a spider, whereas a deer tick and a, and a dog tick are relatively slow movers, and they have eyes. They see you as a heat signature. Yeah. So unfortunately, I'd like to say that it's getting better. Unfortunately, it's not getting better. It is getting worse. 
um, which is a very good reason for people, especially people with small children, because, you know, this is why I got into, this is why I do what I do. I, I've seen so many, typically my, my market is the top 2%, even, even higher than that, a lot of times. You know, it's so sad to me to see someone who has obviously done very well in life. They're very successful. And they are so stricken and their family and especially their children, the children of the kids are what really get, you know, my heart shrinks and, and wrinkles when I, when I even talk about it and think about it. I've seen some of these kids that, you know, I have a four and a seven year old and, you know, I've seen so much money spent. I, I hate to, I hate to break it down in dollars and cents, but I've seen so much money spent by very wealthy people. And, you know, I, I, I try to create a, an intimate personal relationship with my clients. And, you know, I, I would say 99% of the time they're, they're very willing to do it. They, they enjoy my passion and, and we, we kind of create game plans together as to how we're going to protect their, their individual property because every property is different. Uh, and I even share with them my experience. I, I mean, I, I went through, I went through the gauntlet of, of doctors and coming up negative, 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 And, you know, oh my God, I knew I had something. It's absolutely crazy. Um, so to see, to see so much effort and money and doctors thrown at these small children that are just so innocent and all they, all their parents wanted to do was instead of, this is many of them, um, instead of, you know, waking up on Saturday morning in Manhattan to skyscrapers, they want to have a nice house somewhere on a lake about an hour to two hours away from New York. This is a lot of my clientele. And, you know, they want, they want the wide open. They want nature. That's why they bought the place. That's why they, they go there on the weekend so that their children can have some sense of what it is to be outdoors and alive instead of in the city all the time. It's almost a guarantee, McKay, that they are exposing themselves and their children to Lyme disease. It's very sad. Very sad indeed. So where is your company based? And if somebody wants to get hold of you, what's the best way? Well, I'm in Seymour, Connecticut, um, which is uh, southwestern Connecticut. And they can reach me at DeerDefense.com. That's uh, DeerDefense with a C, D-E-F-E-N-C-E. Uh, they can also call me on my, my business line, which is 203-550-8350. And I'm happy to... You know, I, I go anywhere with, from New Jersey to New York to Massachusetts. Um, I've even gone down to Maryland and uh, done some installations. Yeah, I, I guarantee my work. There is no one, no other company out there that guarantees that once we have kept the deer out, that it will be permanent. And that is very important. Once My saying is once you say no, it's got to be no forever because this animal will continue to seek opportunities, they're very opportunistic, um, to get back into the property and somehow negotiate the fence. Yeah. In fact, a pregnant doe wants to find some barrier, some fence that she can easily negotiate so that she can get in and give birth and leave the fawns there while she now goes out and feeds. So... They will, they will actively seek, believe it or not, they will actively seek some fence that they can figure out how to do it, how to get in. And a lot of times it's squeezing underneath. And, of course, we've been taught through Nature Channel and Hollywood that deer and antelope want to jump and fly all the time. <laughs> wrong. Completely wrong. They want to crawl on their bellies, if they can. If they can. So... It's really fascinating. Have, so have that's, you experienced 
have you experienced a lot of Lyme in your area? You know, it's just getting started. I'm in uh, central New York, uh, really yeah. almost at the geographical center of the state. And it's been here and around under the radar mostly. Uh, it's yeah, just, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just getting to the point now where the doctors are kind of willing to entertain the thought that it might be Lyme disease. And um, it's starting to show up in this community more. I had a friend last summer who was pretty sure he got bit out on a golf course. So you're talking about, you know, whether it survives in the in the the sunshine or not. It tend it can be cooler up here for quite a bit longer into springtime. Yeah. So people are out on the golf course early and the, the temperatures are still in the fifties and the sixties. So uh yeah, it's it's a problem. And uh your behavior, we you know, I'm on about thirty acres and we have a a soft aluminum wire electrified fence and the deer just don't give a hoot. The cows stay away from it and are terrified of it. The deer run right through this fence uh, and they just continue to come. You put, you know, it's one of our weekly routines is to go out along the fence line and uh, put the fence back together again where they've knocked it down. Do we have another few minutes that I can talk about them? Sure. Okay, great. Uh, then, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of buzz right now, especially from spray companies. Uh, not that I blame them. If, if, if I were in their position, I would probably do the same thing. They have taken a study, and I won't name any names. Oh, come on. Done name by name a some names. very well-known gentleman who has written something called the Tick Handbook. Uh, okay. Okay. I met this guy, brought him in 2003 out to one of my new deer fence, and I was the only guy in the world to have this particular deer fence at the time. I introduced it to the public. To, you know, in the hopes that somehow we would be able to create some, um, some uh, between us that we would, you know, perhaps expand upon, have have the new deer fence tested, the new idea tested, um, that we would create a relationship. And, you know, so we're walking around, and I'll try to make it short. We're walking around, and, and we were talking about the study that he had just completed. Uh, he's affiliated with uh, the agricultural station in North Haven, I believe it is. So, he, this guy is like the go-to for the CDC. Any question that the CDC has about ticks or Lyme disease, this guy gets, gets the phone call or the email. Um, but this is back at the time, this was in 2003, where this was kind of just up and coming and it was becoming a big buzz and um, the scientists who were involved in the, in the research of this were just you know, up and coming and really starting to kind of make a name for themselves, I guess is, is the best way to put it. So he did a study on a very large property. Uh, I believe it was 3,000 linear feet, if I'm not mistaken. And that's over half a mile. That's a very big fence. So anytime you ask, and this goes for any product, any mesh, anytime you are asking more uh, the deer to change more of their habits, a little tiny garden, or, or even a large garden, very easy to keep a deer out of the garden. When you start getting to a quarter, half a mile, or more of fence line, now you're asking the deer to change a whole lot of habits. That, because that's their territory. Okay, so this, it becomes, it becomes more difficult the bigger you get. So, walking around and we were talking about his, the, the, the test results that he just got um, for, for this test, which he just published. He showed that there was no significant reduction for ticks within 30 meters inside the fence. And I had done my own study on my own fences that I had installed over a year and done tick drags and tick collection within those perimeters. And I had gotten different results. In fact, totally different results. I had gotten 90, 90 to 93% reduction in tick counts just inside the fence or for, the, for the whole property. 
but his showed that there was no significant reduction for 30 meters within the fence. They put in an electric fence. I had seen electric fence in places like Greenwich, Connecticut, and other very nice places in the state and in New York State that simply just were not working anymore. And, and today, in, I would say in the past, say, seven, eight years, I have not seen a new electric deer fence go up because there, there came a realization in the market, and this was about 10 years ago or so, that the, the electric deer fence, no matter how it's configured, it could be the Gallagher, which is from Cornell, came from the 60s, slanted, or it can be a Gallagher um, uh, uh, modification or that has another slant on the inside, which kind of looks like a, you know, Stalag 13 fence. It's like an X. So basically what they were doing was adding depth to the fence, okay? Right. All this is hogwash because deer, deer considered, are, are classified as one of two hooved mammals. They're classified as ungulates. What does ungulates, that mean? like bees and fish, see in the ultraviolet world. This is one issue. You cannot coat or paint or do anything to that high tensile electric wire strand, that steel metal strand that delivers the shock. Because if you coat it or paint it, it will not deliver, it will insulate it to a degree. It will not deliver the shock that it's supposed to deliver. This is one big problem because deer can see that metallic color very well. It reflects ultraviolet light extremely well. So as soon as the sun goes down, that sense literally in their world lights up like neon. Wow. Bing. There it is. So they see it better at night than you and I do during the day. If you can make that work in your brain. Secondly, they don't take a, a shock weld. Their hooves are hollow. Their fur is hollow. So they're not really good. They're, they don't ground well. Even if they do, it turns out, they're so damn tough. Legally, in, in the United States, you cannot turn the amperage up high enough on an electric fence to be a good deterrent for a deer, even if they do take the shock. So the moral is, even if, they, even if they're a little wet and they, they are grounded well, is that shock, is that zap that they're going to take strong enough to work on their natural instincts, which is telling them to be inside the fence while we are in the area instead of where they're supposed to be, which is outside the fence. So while they're in the neighborhood, they were spending more time in just inside this fence that this big study was happening on than they were where they were supposed to be, which is outside the fence. Now, this was a big property, so it makes sense to me that there was no significant reduction for 30, only 30 meters within, the, within that perimeter or exclusion, okay? Because the deer want to keep close to that edge in case they get spooked. Right. They will not meander around, and the bigger it is, the more true this is. If it's an electric fence, they will typically not meander around in the middle. They want to be close to that fence line or relatively close to it so that if they need a quick out, they have a good idea of where that fence is because, of course, they don't want to get entangled in it. Right. Well, around here, okay. you can see the deer. They hang out by the hedgerows and by the edges of the cornfields and the soybean fields. They don't, they're not in the middle, even though there's more food out there. They're never there. Unless, unless, they're, unless they're sprinting through it. That's right. Unless they're moving. That's yeah. right. But as, as far as relaxing and browsing and meandering, doing just what the animal does in, in a normal day, they will not hang out typically in the middle of that exclosure or enclosure. They want to be close to that fence line. Now, I tried telling this scientist that, 
And what I got was his hand in his fist going, the fist was working! <laughs> of course, you're not going to tell a big shot scientist that some of their data was skewed. They don't want to hear that, right? No. So what's happened was, to this day, this study has been, the bad, I must say, the bad information in it has been taken by many companies with, with dollar signs in their eyes and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, they had a deer fence. There was this, you know, this guy, very famous scientist, biologist, entomologist, by the way, um, that did this study. You know, people pay this guy big bucks to do the, this type of research. Well, he says that there was no significant reduction inside the deer fence. And as soon as, you know, it's crazy to me, as soon as, like, you know, scientists are supposed to be smarter than everybody else, right? So wasn't there some check? Some monitoring to make sure that this perimeter was secure, not just because it was called the deer fence or because they paid someone who, you know, quote unquote, installed deer fence. Like they're supposed to do what they do. That's what they advertise. And that's supposed to be the end result is no deer, right? Ridiculous. And, and, and thank you for sharing that with me in, in that this electric cattle approach to a deer issue simply does not work. Yeah. Well, we're, work. yeah, we're not, we're, we, with the time we put this up, we weren't interested in keeping deer out. We just wanted to keep the cows in, but it's, we're continually shocked by how little regard the deer have for these fences. They just don't care. They literally don't care. And now the problem is that- you've explained why. <laughs> You know. Right. The problem is that they can depict it and they know where it is. Yeah. Now, if we had a way of anodizing that strand, meaning making it black, non-metallic, so that they cannot see it or see it, see it as well, then we would have more of a effect. But, but there's, there's simply no way that you can do anything to that strand to make it less noticeable to the animal. Yeah. And that is, in fact, how my deer fence works. It is a thin black material. And what it does is it takes the, the, the high jump away from the deer. Uh, how they high? Cannot, they how? literally cannot see the mesh, and they can't see how high it is, or more accurately, they can't see how high it isn't. They can't tell where it stops. So they're not going to attempt that risky, and they know it's risky, jump, high jump over something that they can't, get a good depiction or feel for where that is, where that high jump is. And they know that a deer with a broken leg, in fact, is, is coyote food that night. They, yeah. they realize that. Yep. Okay. So how high are your fences? Well, the rule is seven and a half, and okay. about six to eight inches is sacrificed on the ground right. as a flap to the outside. What you have to do is eliminate the seam on the bottom. Um, which is kind of different than every other kind of fence that's out there. But this one is actually not meant to be as high as the speck on the roll. Uh, it depends on the terrain. More importantly is, is that you have a good six to eight inch flap on the ground that you can ground stake or somehow anchor to the ground. Right. So, so the height ends up being, I'm going to say about six and a half to about six, nine, six, ten. But more important than that, than the height of the fence, this particular fence, my hex fence, as long as you're at six or better, you're okay. If right. you're a little less than six, then you run the risk that they can actually stand on their hind legs and, and get their front hooves over the top of the fence and, and try to pull themselves over or pull the fence down. And figure That's it out. The, the, the risk you run then. Right. So one last question. You've been very gentle with your time. Uh, is so for people who aren't in the one or two percent who can't fence their entire property, what's the best strategy for trying to keep deer away or the, at least the ticks away? Yes. Um, I, I, I certainly want to, it, it's, it's not that I close myself, you know, in, into that and, um, you know, I'm not super high price structure. Uh, in my business. So I, I, I do sell to everybody, 
a lot of times I will sell a fence kit um, or some rolls of fence to just a homeowner who wants to do it themselves. And I'll, in fact, take hours sometimes at, at no profit to me for that time on the phone just to talk the person through the steps that they want to be careful to take while they're installing the fence. So I, I make sure that when someone buys you know, the fence kit from me, that, that they know what they're doing when, when they go to put it up or have someone else put it up for them. Um, so it's not the whole property. That's not the important thing. It's that you do a complete perimeter. You can just do the backyard if you want to. The key is that you cannot do three sides or two sides or one side. Like the snow, I still hear, it, it amazes me sometimes still to this day, but um, and I used to hear it a lot more, but I, I don't hear it so much anymore. It's still periodically. People see the deer coming in from this side. They'll say the left, the, I don't know, to the north. And they say, well, let's just, you know, we'll connect it from the house here and we'll go around the back and we'll just do two sides because that's, that's the way they're coming in. I'm not going to worry about this side over here because they don't come in that way. Preposterous. This, that's like that's like going to your favorite restaurant, which has two entrances, and one entrance says, you know, please use the other door. <laughs> what are you going to do? Get in your car and go home? No, you're going to go to the other door. That's exactly what the animal is going to do. To think that this animal is so easily snubbed just still to this day amazes me. That's changing People are really learning that this is not so easy as, as most companies would have them believe. So one of the key to deer abatement and tick reduction is a complete perimeter. You have to completely encircle whatever, whatever area you want to protect. Perfect. Thank you so much. And the next is, yeah. and you, you read it all the time, but it is very important, and that is keep the leaf litter away. Keep any chipmunk. Chipmunks are big perpetuators. A, a study done in Massachusetts about eight years ago showed that chipmunks are just as high uh, infection rate and carriers of Borrelia as mice. And I would also venture to say that probably gray and, and red squirrels are also very high on the uh, carrier list for perpetuating the bacteria. So you want to eliminate, not limit. I mean, get rid of all those wood piles, those old wood piles that are rotting, which are pure chipmunk, beautiful chipmunk habitat. I mean, they, and mice habitat, they love those. All the leaf litter, any undergrowth, you know, areas around the house that, that you let the grass get too high. You know, let's say you were cutting it for years and you just kind of let it go this year. Not a good idea. Keep as much cut, let as much sunlight in, and keep those critters to a minimum or eliminate them altogether. You should be able to enjoy the wildlife, and through my fence you can do it because it's like a screen. You literally cannot see the fence. You do see everything through the fence, and that is how you should enjoy the wildlife around your house, it's, in my opinion, is from a distance. All right, Peter. Terrific. You are a wealth of knowledge, my man. <laughs> you have made this you. your mission. It's very clear. Well, thank you, Mr. Yeah, you're very welcome. Listen, if there's, for your patient's uh, well-being, if yeah. there's question you know i it's not about money to me it's about this thing has been squelched there's reasons that people are getting really sick with this thing um you know the whole plum island and all that but we won't get into that now Th there's a reason that people are getting so sick and there needs to be a way bigger buzz on this than there is and thank you sir for bringing this to to stream and to line ninja radio i i i give you kudos and i hope that, this, that more and more people will begin to, to really
create a buzz um, what needs to be out there about Lyme disease and other Lime Ninja Radio is a purely enough, public broadcast and is not intended storm, to be personalized right? medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Right. Each individual's right. medical situation is unique, and Thanks Lime again. Ninja Radio should Have not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, Contact your physician before considering any new treatment. Getting a little bit going with Twitter, uh, so you can look us up either on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Lime Ninja Radio. And lastly, we are available on iTunes. You can subscribe to the podcast there, and as soon as the new podcast comes out, you'll get it downloaded right to your iPhone or tablet. And if you're an iTunes power user and know how to leave ratings and reviews, please do so. I've been explaining for some of my friends how to do this, and it's not an easy thing. So if by any chance you can do that, please do it. The uh, feedback helps raise our rankings in iTunes and gets the word out to more people. Thanks. Talk to you next week.